Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, how many of you can relate to that experience? Remember the first time you ever had to pray? Somebody said, hey, why don't you pray? Might have been in a church service, might have been in a growth group, maybe even family meal time, and there's that oh, I don't know how to pray, and you get all nervous and sweaty, and you're anticipating what you're supposed to say. There's that side of prayer to us, but there's another side too. There's the side that is in the inner part, in the inner recesses of our mind and our spirit where most people are not given access to. It's in those intensely personal moments when you're immersed in the privacy of your own thoughts, you have questions. You do. Your questions are like this, God, are you there? God, can you hear me? And there's this awkward silence, this, this uncertainty. You understand what I'm talking about, right? We've all been there because even though we put the external appearance on that I'm doing okay, all of us, all of us have these moments where we wonder, you know, can God hear us? And it's the relentless haunting questions. How can I know for certain that God is listening? Is there, is there something that I should be doing that would improve my ability and maybe my options for God to hear me? And what kind of prayers? What kind of prayers does God listen to? So those are the questions, whether we're honest about it or not, many of us wrestle with those very questions. We go, I, I don't know if God hears my prayer. I, I don't know if I need to tweak my prayers and do something to do a performance improvement where God is going to listen to me. And then we get this little simple clue that the Bible gives us. And if you look, it unlocks the mystery of prayer. It's over in James chapter 5, verse 16, where James says, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. And we quickly move to the powerful and effective because we like that. Anything that's powerful and effective, we want to talk about. But here's the mystery, and here's the clue. James says that the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Now, for some, there's that immediate sense of empowerment because we go, oh, then then I'm doing okay. I'm a moral person. I make good choices. I could be elected to be citizen of the year. I help my neighbors. I'm compassionate. I'm loving. I serve everybody. So I would certainly fit into that classification of what it is to be a righteous person. So God certainly must hear my prayer. So we hear a verse like James 5.16, that the prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. You go, I I think I'm good. I think I'm in that classification. And then there are those who hear that verse, and it's debilitating. It's debilitating. Because you are acutely aware of your faults and your mistakes and your sins, how how far short you fall. And so when you hear something like this, you're thinking to yourself, there's no way, there's no way that God will hear me. If James is even close to being accurate. I wouldn't put myself in the righteous bracket. So for you, the question becomes, why would God? And why should God? Listen to me. And we end up spiraling into a pit of hopelessness and despair. Listen, these same thoughts, these same questions, these same attitudes and convictions were prevalent at the time of Jesus. 
There were people who thought they had insight into what it meant to have access to the very heart and ear of God. And so there's a great deal of confusion and misunderstanding when it came to the subject of righteousness. For some, they were pretty confident. They thought that they had cornered the righteousness market, that if there's anybody that has got the in, it was them. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew who they were. They were in God's good books. You could see them in the street. You could see them in the temple. You see them at the public gatherings. You could see them in private homes. These are the people that had God's good books, and they certainly were the ones that were heard by God. And then there's another group, and they were the ones that seriously doubted that they should even dare approach God. And if they were to approach God, would God even listen? Why would God listen to them? So who better than Jesus to address the underlying tension and the misunderstanding when it comes to righteousness? And he does. And what better way than to tell a story? Now, if you're joining our series for the first time, we've been talking about tales of the kingdom where Jesus reveals foundational principles of the kingdom of God, and he does it by saying, well, the kingdom of heaven is like, or he will just lurch into a story. And people around him just all of a sudden stop and they go, wow, well, we're going to do that today. We're going to jump into a story where Jesus talks about this prayer, this righteousness, this opportunity to be heard by God and whether or not God hears my prayer or your prayer. And he begins to unpack some very, very interesting pieces. So take your Bibles out. We're going to go to Luke chapter 18. You can download the Portico app. If you're watching online, you can follow along. Make sure you download our app and uh, track that way. And by the way, when you're coming on Sundays, if you're in the main room, just to remind you that we have Bibles available. They're in the foyer. We have bookshelves where our Bibles are available. You can pick one up, bring it in the room, use it, leave it on the chair. But uh, we have them available now because you've been so well-trained, everybody is bringing their Bibles, right? All right, let's try that again. We're so well-trained, we're all bringing our Bibles to church, aren't we, right? All right, there we go. We're good. Luke chapter 18, that's what we're going to jump into. And let's have a look at what Jesus talks about in the form of a story. So verse 9. So to some who are confident of their own righteousness and they look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. But the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who will exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus sets the context for a story. Every man, woman, and child listening to this immediately got it. They didn't need any kind of background setting. They lived in it. They smelt it. They dreamed it. They attended it. The narrative was living to them. Jesus said two went up to the temple. They understood something. These men were going to attend a public worship service. According to Jewish historians, there were two public worship services that were held every day, one on the first thing in the morning, the other at three in the afternoon. They were called the offering, the burnt offering. A lamb would be sacrificed. Blood would be sprinkled around the altar. The remains would be burnt. There would be symbols and trumpets and celebrations and prayers and the reading of the psalms. And then the priest presiding over the service would make his way inside into the outer court of the sanctuary, that sacred holy place. He'd go into the outer court area and he would fill the, the incense 
into his uh, container and then wave the incense offering before the Lord. And as the incense would rise as a prayer, all the people gathered for the public service at the temple would be outside. And when they were outside and they knew at that moment that the priest was waving the incense, they would begin to pray publicly. And the interesting thing about this, according to the historians, the way that they would pray is they would cross their hands, they would stand outside, and they would begin to vocalize their prayers. And they would verbally pray. In fact, if you were to to visit Israel today and you go to the Western Wall, you'll see that many of the Jews that still gather at the wall to pray, they do pray in this fashion. I've been privileged to be there. And they'll stand across the front and some will slip notes into the wall, but they'll stand and they'll bob and they'll pray and you'll hear an audible prayer coming from many of them that are gathered there. So on this day, when Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray, everybody goes, oh, I get that. I've been in that service. I know exactly what it is. And so they were very, very familiar with the nature of what the praying was going to look like because they fully expected it would be as if I said, please stand to your feet, let's pray. And everybody in the room began to say, God, I thank you all together at the same time, praying individual prayers, but praying in a public gathering. Now, Jesus does something that's rather unique here. He says, though, that these two men that gather together to pray, the occasion is the participation in the service, but it's the color of their relationship with God that begins to shine through. For one would embody what I call the perception of righteousness, and the other is one who would embrace the true posture of righteousness. So if you're going to take a few notes this morning, fill in the first blank, the Pharisee in the story Jesus says, embodies the perception of righteousness. This is fascinating. Jesus aptly chose a Pharisee to be the feature character in his story. Why did he do that? Because anybody listening to him right away recognized something about the Pharisees. These were the best of the best. These were the elite when it came to the spiritual realm. These were the ones that the very public would view as those who had access to God. And of all the people who would pray, surely the Pharisees are heard by God. Now, those of you that have been following Jesus for a little while, you understand something. Jesus usually had another purpose when he told the story. And when he mentions a Pharisee, it didn't elicit the same sort of emotion in him as it did in the crowds of people who would look at the Pharisees and go, they are those that are closest to God. For him, he recognized them to be the individuals who had a smug arrogance. Now, not all of them. Let's be fair. There was Joseph of Arimathea. There was Nicodemus, sincere seekers of the truth who came to Jesus privately. But the vast majority were these that walked with this elitist attitude So the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees was steeped with tension. Most of them were not charter members of the Jews for Jesus fan club. They despised his popularity and his apparent disregard for the Sabbath. And they perceived that most of his teaching was heretical. And conversely, Jesus couldn't stand their self-righteousness and their arrogance, their hard-heartedness, and their religious superiority. So who better to be cast into the role as the one who would embody the perception of righteousness than a Pharisee. And so Jesus does that. Now, I share this with you so that when we hear the words, we give specific attention, very careful attention, because watch what Jesus says, and he does it intentionally. Verse 11, it's in your notes. I'll go to the screen for you. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people robbers and evildoers and adulterers. Now remember, this is public prayer. 
This is like the person seated next to you right now. If you're at home by yourself, it's a little different. But if you're in the room with us, the person seated next to you, we go to public prayer time and they go, God, I thank you that I'm not like this guy or this woman. I'm not like... They came in late. I'm glad I'm not like that. I don't know what that was all about. But this is the type of prayer. So it's public. He says, so I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He calls them out. And then he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now notice carefully how Jesus places them in the story. He talks about them not shoulder to shoulder, enmeshed in the masses of the people that are gathered together for the public worship. He was apart from the people. There was a distance around him from everybody else that had gathered for this public worship. Jesus chose that word intentionally. What he was trying to show is to reveal something about the nature of the Pharisees. They were those who had interpreted the law. They took the law of Moses, interpreted it into oral tradition, 613 different laws, things that they could do, rituals they must follow, how to control to make sure they wouldn't trip up and disobey the law. So they had all these extraneous laws that they tried to comply with. And one of the laws, according to their Mishnah, the oral tradition, was that they couldn't touch a commoner, someone who was unclean. Because if they did, it would make them unclean and affect their righteousness. So they couldn't sit next to, ride next to, or lean up against anybody that was unclean. And so he goes to the temple to worship, and what does he do? He gets to his place, and when he gets into the room, he's going like, okay, okay, hymnal distance, hymnal distance, you stay away, you stay away, a little bit of a scroll distance. Everybody stay away. Sort of like when we go to church and we make sure there's a chair on either side of us. We want our space, don't we? Don't look around the room, I'm just kidding. This guy got into the worship service and he goes, I don't want to defile myself with anything that would discount my relationship with God. So he keeps everybody very, very carefully at a distance. Everybody else is listening to the story and they go, yeah, 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 yeah we recognize. That's cool. And then when you look at what he does, it's the way that he prays at the appropriate time in the service. He starts to pray out loud, crosses his hands. Now, for a pious Jew a real devout Jew at the time, they would have had basically three elements to their prayer. There would have been an expression of confession, failures, mistakes, sins, because remember what happened, right? They were watching the priest offer the lamb, blood is sprinkled around the altar, the remains are being offered as a burnt offering, so they recognize this is an atonement moment. And the priest is in now, waving the incense before the Lord, so the way to God has been made available. So when they're praying, in their minds, God has said, I will hear your prayers now. So they're all excited. They're going, this is amazing. Now we can pray to God because our sins have been atoned for. So this, this devout Pharisee is out there, and everybody else is basically saying, Father, forgive me for I've sinned, and Lord, thank you for your provision in my life, and I have these needs. And we, most of us, I think, we tend to pray like that. We have sort of a variation of that, but we pray generally along those lines. Not this guy. This guy prays a prayer not of acknowledgement of need, but of arrogance. He gets up and he goes, God, I thank you that I'm not like any of these guys. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I'm not an evildoer. And I'm not even like, and in his peripheral vision, he can see a tax collector. And I'm not even like this tax collector, God. And you're going, that's abysmal. Who would pray like this? This is horrific. But everybody listening to Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, but of course, that's what it is to be righteous. That's what it means to be righteous. You set yourself apart. You stay away from it. You don't be like other people. 
And so they're listening to Jesus tell the story, and there's nothing shocking about the story to this point. And yet what this man is doing is he's basically praying a prayer of condemnation to those around him. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting where somebody starts to pray, and they're literally praying against other people, but they form it in the form of a prayer so it feels righteous in the moment? You know, God, I thank you that uh, we're so good and we're so holy. And, we're so, and those people are just terrible people. We get caught in these moments of prayers and you feel awkward because you go, they smack of self-righteousness. But for everybody else, this Pharisee is praying and Jesus tells the story because what this man was doing, Jesus was illustrating the problem in the day. This man was preaching a message to the people around him. He goes, you want to see what righteousness looks like? I am righteousness. You want to see what people look like who God listens to? I am the man. I'm not an evildoer. I am not an adulterer. I am not a taxpayer. So he's setting the course, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's the guy. Then he says, and God, by the way, just in case who I am is not enough for you, look what I do. And he begins to enumerate the activities he participates in. He says, I fast, how many times? Twice a week. Now, Mosaic law, Moses prescribed that they would fast 12 times a year. This guy goes, I fast twice a week. Why did he do that? Because they interpreted the law to make sure they didn't trip up the law. So 613 rules. They fast twice a week, 104 times a year, nine times better than the law required. God, surely anybody who fasts nine times more than they need to has got to be a really, really good guy. So he's given all of his own personal accolades and commending himself before God why God needs to listen to him. And then everybody else is listening and go, oh my goodness, I can't even fast. I mean, man, I try to skip a meal. My stomach starts to growl. And they're going, well, he's a holy righteous man because he can do it twice a week. Anybody relating so far? You start a fast and you find a Snickers? Yeah, okay. So this is the challenge right here. And this is the man who's praying to God. Then he takes it up another level. Oh, by the way, God, in case the fasting wasn't enough for you, I tithe. You know, when, when the priest gets up and the offering box is at the gates or the pastor gets up and he says, it's time to give, I tithe. And I'm not like people who go, now, do I tithe on my net or my gross? I'll start with my net, and if God speaks to me, I'll raise it up because I don't hear God anyhow. I tithe on my gross. And he wanted everybody to know that. So he shares this entire thing. And everybody listening, get this, get this. Everybody listening to the story is going, that's right, Jesus. You're telling us exactly what we expected to hear. These are the righteous people. And we are hoping that by following their rabbis and following their schools of rabbinical thought that we are someday going to be able to raise ourselves up to the same level that they are and that we will earn the right and the privilege to be heard by God in the very same manner. So they couldn't see themselves there because this was a man who truly embodied the perception of righteousness. But the reason Jesus told the story was for a different purpose. He is trying to remind them, you've forgotten something. The prophet Isaiah has adequately illustrated this for us in 64 verse 6 in your notes. He said that our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Anything we do, any list we try to lift up before God, he goes, don't you understand they're filthy rags? And then Paul would write to the Romans, and he would tell the Romans there in your notes, he goes, and don't think yourself more highly than you should. Don't start boasting about who you are. Only boast in the Lord. So they're all listening to Jesus, and they're going, okay, well, we got the righteous thing down. Now let's wait for this tax collector, because, man, he is going to get 
slammed. He is the unrighteous of the unrighteous. And so Jesus continues the story and he goes, but, and they're going, oh yeah, two men went up to pray. At the very outset of the story, when Jesus said the Pharisee and the tax collector, I think for a lot of people, it was game over. If you're going to go head to head and you got these two men, for anybody listening to Jesus, they would have gone, they've already drawn their own conclusion. The Pharisee's going to win. He's always going to win. That's the epitome of what it is to be the spiritual elite in our culture. But Jesus intentionally chooses to use a tax collector for the second character role in his story. Why did he do that? Why? Because it was the one person where no additional commentary was needed. No character references were going to be provided. These were the traitors and the swindlers of Israel, the puppets of Rome, feeding the financial wealth of Israel into the pockets of Caesar and packing their own bank accounts at the expense of their own people. So when Jesus said, tax collector, you could not have had a better picture of the most despised, unrighteous person in the land. And if you're taking notes, this is the one, the tax collector, that Jesus will teach us, embraces the posture of righteousness. For his prayer is a one-sentence prayer, comprised of simple words, only seven. No excuses, no comparisons, no works of commendation. Luke 18, 13, in your notes, says this, but the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, remember the context. Remember what I shared with you earlier. This was a public worship service, exactly what we're in. This is the character in the story that Jesus said, this man went up to the service that day. He wasn't even sure he'd be accepted when he walks in to that courtyard and he looks around at all the people that are gathered together and he sees the altar and the sacrifice and everything that's about to take place. He's walking into a place where he is despised. He's already been verbally berated by a Pharisee. and He knows he's not welcome here. And he watches carefully as the priest presides over the worship service and he presents the blood. The offering is burnt. Then he watches as the cymbals and the trumpets and the reading of the psalms, and then the priest disappears into the back, and he knows that the incense, and everybody knew the incense is being offered right now, and it's in that moment right there when the way to God is available. And Jesus says something about this man. When access to God was there, he stood at a distance. He stood away from the crowd. He knew what everybody else was thinking about him. And no doubt in his own mind, in his own spirit, he had to wonder, I I wonder what God even thinks about me being on the Temple Mount today. And undeterred by the verbal berating of a Pharisee, Jesus says this man's eyes were cast down. He's not looking up. He doesn't assume the normal posture in the room where everybody else is there with their arms crossed and they're praying and vocalizing their prayers. His eyes are cast down and Jesus says he does something. He takes his hands and he closes them into fists. And in this moment, without looking up, he begins to beat his chest. And he just begins to pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, no doubt at that moment in the story, people start to murmur. Jesus just violated a fundamental principle of culture. Men don't beat their chests. 
They didn't then. Men don't do that. Women do. You could hire professionals who would go and mourn at a funeral. You could see women who would mourn for the loss of a child or a loved one or mourn for the nation of Israel, and they would beat their chests in agony and pain, and they would cry out, but men don't do this. Jesus, what are you doing in this story? Come on, a tax collector beating his chest? That doesn't happen. Oh, except Luke chapter 23, verse 48. It says, when the people saw Jesus die on the cross and they saw the horrific nature of the scene and the blood that was there and the cursing and the rebuking and everything that was taking place and they were bartering over his clothes, at the sight of all of this, the men and women who walked away from the cross beat their chests in absolute disgust and agony and horror over what they had seen. And right back into the story, Here's a tax collector beating his chest. Oh God, oh God, have mercy on me. He could see the incense rising to God and there's a wishful hope. I know that Pharisee, I know you hear him. But God, if there's any way I could get pulled into this story, could you get me there? And there's something about his prayer. Now our English language doesn't get us there. But there's something in the original language that just sort of gets uh, fleshed out a little deeper than what we can read here. What he was praying, if we were to take the literal words and put them together, he was praying this prayer. He's going, oh God, make atonement for me. You go, well, that's kind of a strange word, atonement. See, you've got to put it all together. He saw the spilt blood of the lamb around the altar. He could see the remains of the carcass that had been burnt on the offering. He heard the sounds, the trumpets, heard the psalms, and saw the smoke of prayer being lifted up to God. And so in that moment, he's putting all of this together, and he goes, I got one shot at this. I got one deal here. God is listening right now. God, make atonement for me. Make atonement for me. And everybody listening to Jesus, this story kingdom of heaven. This is so different than what they ever expected. Psalm 51, 17, it says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. And Jesus ends the story rather abruptly. Not how you think he would. But it was abrupt. Luke 18, verse 14, he said, I tell you the truth. This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And that would have blown the minds of his audience. Jesus downgraded a Pharisee and he uplifted and elevated those that they thought were the unrighteous. And in that moment, Jesus goes, I'll tell you, it's this one who knew what it was to embody the posture of righteousness and throw himself at the mercy of God. And they're all thinking, never, 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 Could a tax collector have access to God? How could this person that everyone perceived to be the most righteous in the land somehow be dismissed and set aside in order that the one that they would never expect could have access to God? The chasm, the impassable chasm that our works of self-righteousness will never bridge. That's what Jesus was driving at. He was trying to remind them, it's not about what you do. 
It's not about what you have done. It's not about what you might be able to do. God doesn't look at any of that. Any of our works that we do, we do out of joy for faithful service to the Lord. We don't do it to merit the righteousness which we could never earn on our own. And he was reminding everybody in that moment, and Paul, I think, says it so eloquently in Romans 5, verse 8, God would demonstrate his own love for us in this while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. His blood was shed for us. He built a bridge into relationship, a bridge that would span the chasm that was impassable and works of self-righteousness would never get us there. To the Corinthian believers, Paul would write this in 1 Corinthians, Christ made us right with God. Christ made us pure and holy. You notice, not what we did. Christ made us pure and holy. And he freed us from sin. He set us free. He liberated. God did it all for us so that we would not rely on our self-righteousness, but we would humble our hearts and embody the posture of humility. We are made righteous with God through Jesus Christ alone. There's something about this. John, the forerunner of Jesus, his words would ring with clarity at the cross. When people were looking at Jesus on the cross and they saw the wounds and they saw the blood and they saw the mess and everything, all of a sudden there would be these words of John that would just ring true. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not the great altar at the temple. It is the great altar at the cross where the covenant that God establishes with man is set and finished forever. And everyone looking at Jesus suddenly began to realize, look at the blood. Look at the blood around the altar. Look at the sacrifice. And there was nothing that they could do. And so a criminal next to Jesus on the cross would say, Jesus, remember me. And he goes, that's good enough for me. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It messed everybody up because they were sure they understood this. And so it's in that moment when you look at the cross that every eye fixed on Jesus who is giving his life for all of us. It is the cry of every heart that recognizes there is nothing that I can do to earn my place with God. It is the cry that says, oh God, make atonement for me. For me. And he did. He did. So that all who would receive him, to those who would believe in his name, he would give the right to become children of God. I wonder, I wonder if James 5, 16, when it says the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective, if just maybe James understood something that many of us miss, it is not our works of self-righteousness that lead us into powerful prayers. It is embracing the posture of true righteousness. That is humility and contrition before God and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. Would you make atonement for me? And friends, he did for all of us. All he says, you just got to believe. You just got to believe. Can we do something today? Would you mind, would you stand to your feet all across the room, everybody in the room? If you're watching online, I would actually encourage you to stand. Just participate right now. I said a story for you. It's called The Tale of the Kingdom. And Jesus brought everything into such vivid detail. And everybody knew 
what it was like to gather for public worship. And he said, in this gathering of public worship, we had one who was sure they were in and God was listening. And we had one who chose to sit near the far back door, and I won't point to any door here, because they weren't sure they were in. And he goes, we get this messed up. He goes, those who are in are those whose hearts are bowed in humility before God. And they simply say, make atonement for me. Now imagine, imagine what worship was like when everybody got it. When they realized there's nothing I can do, an innocent animal and the innocent son of God was slain for us. How worship would take on a different focus. How prayer would take on a different focus. And so in this context, when it came time for public prayer, everybody, everybody would begin to vocally pray. Well, what would it be like for us if for a few minutes we would just come to the altar and worship him with our words and not bring our achievements, our name, our background, our education. We bring our hearts to the altar. Would you do that with me this morning? Let's worship him and come to the altar. What a great invitation for us today, isn't it? Just come to the altar. The altar is not a physical place. The altar is that place of consecration that we make it. Our heart, our bedrooms, our living rooms, our office space, wherever that is. You know, the story that Jesus told, part of what I love about this, is not only does he show us how the Father invites us into that relationship, but he makes it accessible because he took care of the price. Some of you today, you just need to say yes to Jesus. You need to quit trying to earn God's favor and approval and recognize that we'll always miss the mark unless we turn and we trust Him. That we just, our sin and our mistakes are more than we can ever bear. And we just got to turn and say, Jesus, I just say yes to you. And others of us, when it comes time for public worship, we just need to throw our hands up and go, wow, it's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I'm a teacher. It's because he loved me and he loved you. So I'd like us to do something. We don't often do this, and so I don't want anybody to get weirded out. But the story was rooted in the service at the point when it was public prayer. And they were vocalizing their prayers to God. And that's where it was all anchored out of. One was just so authentic and one was absolutely based in self-righteousness. So I want to give you a moment before we leave today to pray. Now, you don't have to cross your arms. don't have to do that. And you don't even have to shout out. I'm not going to ask you to do that. But you're more than welcome if you'd like to be vocal about it, just to pray. Just in your normal tone, just, Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you for your love. And if you're at home and you're watching online, I want you to do the same thing. So while the band plays in the background... What better practical response than for all of us to come to the altar and to tell God, thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. And some of you, today's the day you go, yes, Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. God, we're just so grateful today. 
so blown away to be reminded again of the incredible price that was paid by your son, Jesus. God, so that we could have this moment, so that we could come, Lord, not to just a physical altar, something that's visible, but that we could come, Lord, boldly into the very presence of God. You said we can come before your throne. And Lord, there we can find help and we can find strength in our time of need. So Father, as we are just praying all across this room, but I believe there are some, God, who have said yes to you today for the very first time. And Lord, maybe they're just even still just sitting on the fence. And I pray that in the, in the solemnity of this moment, God, you'll give them the courage to just say, you know what, today's my day. Jesus, I need to say yes to you. And God, help them just to pray and, and invite you to come and to be the Lord and the leader of their life. And God, we thank you that, Lord, in this moment, wherever we are, God, whoever we are, whatever we've done, wherever we've been, God, you invite us to come, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're all on the same level here at the foot of the cross before your altar. And so in Jesus' name today, God, we thank you. We thank you for the access that we all have. And God, help us. Help us always to remember, God, that when we come and we pray before your throne, it's not about our righteousness. It's not about that perceived righteousness of the good things that we do. It's about our, it's about humility in your presence. And God, you said the sacrifice of a broken and a contrite heart, you would not despise. So we thank you today. We give you praise. And we, we just pray that you'll be with every person who's making that decision today for the very first time and saying yes to you. And we ask it in Jesus name. And everyone said, amen. Thanks for watching today. Be sure to check out our other messages on this page, and you can also watch us live online every Sunday morning at 1010 a.m. Don't forget, share your story or send us a prayer request by emailing info at porticocanada.ca. You can also stay connected by liking our Facebook page or following us on Twitter at PorticoCC.